My name is John Ray. I am one of the elders here at Grace Church. Welcome, everybody. It's so good to see everybody here. It's great for all the people who listen in on the podcast and who can't be here physically on a Sunday morning, but join with us by participating through listening and responding uh, through the website and through the podcast. This summer, uh, my wife and I and, and our daughters at various stages got to do quite a bit of traveling. We traveled all over, and as a kid growing up, Yellowstone National Park was one of my all-time favorite places. I just love so much about it. And even though we've got to travel extensively, um, I've never gotten to take Jane or any of the girls to Yellowstone. So this summer, finally, get to go to Yellowstone. And as we approached it, I realized something was, was really off. Something was really different as we got there. And then as we got closer and closer, if we'll show that first slide, Justin, um, we encountered the smoke from the forest fires this summer. But I know, I know there's a lot of natural disaster to keep up with. We're going to talk about that later. But uh, if you're not aware, right now there's a million acres on fire in the, in the west, including the American Pacific Northwest Great Basin up into British Columbia. And if you've been to Yellowstone, you know that part of the awe of it, part of the grandeur of it, are the vistas. I mean, yeah, the geysers are cool, and the waterfalls are neat, and the, the wildlife is, is exceptional, but it's the context in which all that takes place, the majestic range of the mountains behind it. We could see none of it. So our entire journey through Yellowstone was we saw neat things, we, we did great stuff, but was, it was small. It was isolated. It was shrouded by the clouds, by the smoke. And as I, as I left and as I reflected on it, I thought how different my experience, no matter how many pictures you could see in a book or, or how much I could describe it to Jane and to Naomi, who was with us at the time, they're, they're not going to know Yellowstone as I know it because it was shrouded with smoke. We kick off a new series today here at Grace Church. Starting with looking at Genesis, moving then through the book of John and then the Johannan epistles, and then into the book of Revelation next summer. Now we're going to intersperse that with other teachings as we go. And what this does, the image that I have is that more than, more than anything else is that as we commit ourselves to intentional, regular, disciplined study, not just showing up on Sunday morning, as great and as necessary as that is, but taking these texts, exploring them on our own, and then coming together in our grace groups and looking at them together throughout the year, and as each one builds upon the next, what is going to happen is the smoke is going to start to clear. Because all of us live in a world shrouded with smoke. There's so much that works against having a clear vista, having a clear understanding of where we are, having a, an appropriate understanding of the context in which we operate. And the less we pay attention to it, the more the smoke encroaches, the more it obscures the vistas, the less we understand where we are until finally, ultimately, all we can see is ourselves. And we have no awareness of where we are 
who else is around or where we're going. So I want to challenge you. I want to invite you. I would beg you to commit now to what it's going to take to see clearly this year as we work through this panorama of Scripture from the beginning to the end, from the alpha, the omega, and looking at it through the lens of John that will clear away specific things as we go through here. Can you do that with us this year? Can we do that as a community? Let's pray. Jesus, we need to see you, and we need to see you clearly. Our vision is clouded. My vision is clouded. I can't see everything. And I don't know what I'm missing because I haven't seen it before. So I can easily become content with what I feel is reality now. God, open our eyes, blow away the smoke. Give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the hearts to love and to respond individually and as a community to what you show us. Open up to us the vast vistas of creation. Blow away the smoke so we can be in awe of who you are and all that you've done. We desperately need to see. We pray all this in Jesus' name. We're going to look at a large chunk of Scripture this morning. We need to understand, and we need to have an understanding, that we are part of God's creation. And that helps us understand who we are and what we're to be about. During the teaching team, as we talked about this, we kind of came up with three questions this week, which are going to guide our conversation and our teaching this morning. What was God's purpose in creating the world? How is our worldview shaped by our interpretation of the creation story, the Bible, and our purpose and identity? And as we grow in understanding of God and His creation, how should we think about our responsibilities? How should we respond? Well, to do that, we need to stop, and it's always good to have a reminder, and talk just a little bit about how we approach the text, how we approach the Bible at Grace Church. There are a variety of ways of doing that. Anybody who tells you that the Bible is a simple book and you just sit down and you open up and you can, anybody can read it and it's just very clear is selling you something. <laughs> and, it's not, and you're not going to get your money's worth on what they're selling. It is a complex book. And we read and interact with the Bible in some very specific ways. Part of the way is understanding that it is complex. It's the testimonies of generations of people who have encountered God from various cultures that we really don't understand or have very little understanding of and how they all set it down and it was compiled into this book that was given to us. But it's not just like any book. It's not just a history. It's also supernatural in the sense that it is inspired, uniquely inspired by the Holy Spirit. Set over and against every other thing that's ever been written, the Bible is unique. It has the fingerprint of God on every page with it. So we can't just approach it as a history or science book or or a philosophy book or an instruction manual. We have to take a very specific and humble 
even holy approach to it. We have to also understand that it's not just something given to us, dictating things to us, but it invites our voice. I was, I was talking with someone this week. I thought, um, you know, the Bible is continually picking a fight with me. Does anybody else feel like that? Like, I'll read it, I'll study it, and then all of a sudden it'll be just like, reach out and just pow! What do you think about that, John? I mean, it just, it, it's constantly picking fights with me against what I assume or what I think the way things should go or what I, how I want things to go, and then I'll read it, and then the Bible will just call me up short. And instead of being a bully who's trying to quell my voice, who's trying to shut me up, Instead, the whole purpose of that is to get me to talk back, to interact with, to add my voice, to give my questions, to wrestle with it. Wrestling with God, as we're going to see as we go through Genesis later on, is a, is a theme, in fact, within the Bible. So if you think that you can just sit back and passively read this book, I don't think you're reading it the right way. In fact, that last part that I've come to see is that really, ultimately, the Bible reads me a lot more than I read it. Like, it reads me. As I submit myself to Scripture in the context of the, Holy, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and in community, I find that this book, this collection of testimonies and writings is reading me. It is exegeting me much more than I am doing that. And so that takes effort, y'all. That takes work. To engage with the Word that way is not a passive, part-time endeavor. It is something that takes intention, effort, and community. And that's our aspiration. We don't always hit it. I'll be the first to tell you we fall short. But that is our aspiration as Grace Church. And we need to do that as we hit, head into a text as awe-inspiring, as complex, and as challenging as the one today. Now, we don't have time to read all the text today. We're, we're looking at a big chunk of Scripture. There's a, a slide here that kind of gives you the outline of the, of the way that it goes. And you may ask, well, why? wait, aren't you skipping big parts? You're telling the creation story. Hold on, where's, where's the rest? Because I know there's a chapter 2, 3, and 4 of Genesis. Why the skip? Well, here's one of those complex things. Genesis, in its simplest terms, is actually two stories. The book of Genesis, as you read through the chapters, actually comes from two different sources. And they are layered on top of each other. The original people who put together the Bible, when they looked at it, what they did is they looked at both sources, and even though they didn't have a computer to do this, so it must have been really difficult to do at the time, they cut and pasted the two stories together to make one story. But if we read it with intention, if we read it with clarity, if we, if we look at how it's layered together, we can actually see where the stitch marks are we can see how the story was stitched together. And this one story that we're looking at this week is what's often called to as the priestly Genesis story. 
That this was their version of doing it. And the reason why the, the Bible, as I said, it invites conversation is that it's also in conversation with itself. The Bible, if you read it, if, if we can develop the tools, we'll see that it's actually, in many ways, talking to itself. It's having a conversation with itself throughout. So instead of a static, monochromatic, monotone story, we get a story of dynamic tension, of stereo, of interaction, of 3D, full technicolor, brimming with invitation to use our imagination with it. Well, this priestly story kind of goes like this. So if we understand, so let's see what one view, not the view, but one view of creation that was set against the others looked like. Well, that starts with Genesis 1. And it goes through this entire panorama of how the world and everything in it was created. Now we have to understand too, and, it, and I encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast from last year when we talked about this uh, to get a more rich understanding just around these specific verses. But we, we understand that in our story, in the Christian story of Genesis, there is a total lack of conflict. Now if you look at every other story, every other creation story from every other religion, every other culture, there's conflict, there's bloodshed. There's usually a big God and a lesser God, or a man God and a woman God, or a, or a dragon God and a human God, and they fight each other, and they rip each other apart, and stars are created, and land comes, and, and humans are created to serve, and they're enslaved. That's overstating it a bit, but not by much. The Christian story is, is devoid of all that. There's this incredible peace. The other thing is that in our belief as Christians, there's just one God. There's not this pantheon of supernatural beings who are, who are battling it out and then one wins and one gets to rule. No, there's just always been and always will be one God with that. That sets us apart. That makes us unique as followers of Jesus, as Christians. We understand also that creation is not just good, but very good. Again, other creations or other traditions, other creation stories often have that struggle that, that the things of the world are bad or they're just there to be used. As Christians, we look at what God has created and we echo back God's own proclamation. This is very good. The rocks, the streams, the birds... The animals, the air, the trees, the grass, the sunflowers. These, these y'all, these things are not just good, but they're very good. And then lastly, we see that as God comes to the end of this, you know, in, in other stories, most of the time, the, the end came when somebody tired out or somebody won a battle or somebody finally got their way. God ceases his activity. God ceases not because God is tired, but because just like a master artist who looks at a painting, looks at a creation, lifts their brush to add another stroke, and then realizes there is nothing that needs to be added to this. And everything that is necessary for it 
is there. God ceased and called all of it very good. This is the creation into which we are placed. And in this priestly narrative of creation, there is no eating of an apple or snake in the garden. That's the other view, the other part that is held. We hold both in tension. But in this one, it skips instantly to a genealogy. It starts talking about all these people, all these different families, how long they lived and where they lived and how many kids they had and where they went. And you would think, why do you go from creation? Why do we go from this incredible creation story and into, into a genealogy? Well, I would offer a couple of explanations for that. First of all, is that people matter. Your life matters. That you are here and have been named. You matter. You're not just a molecule floating around in a chemical process, but you have a name. You've been given a name. And that, in some way, sets us, even though we are part of creation, it, it sets us as unique within that creative narrative. With that, we're not just dust in the wind, no matter what Kansas would try to tell you. But we all have names, and we all have purpose. And I would say the other thing is that with that name comes responsibility. Is that we are held to a higher level of responsibility than the elements and the things that remain unnamed individually. We are named, as we talked about last night, that indicates a calling on our life. And with that calling comes responsibility. It, there comes a charge to do something, to be someone, and to respond in a specific way for which we will be held accountable, for which there will be consequences if we ignore or deny or misinterpret that. So then you have this whole list of names, and then instantly it is followed by this proclamation that we see that results in the flood. And in the priestly narrative of Genesis, it's not Adam neglecting Eve, and she takes and eats and then hands it off to him and the snake. That's not what sets God off. Instead, it says this in chapter 6, verse 11, the earth was ruined in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. God takes very seriously the condition of his creation and holds accountable those charged with taking care of it. This resulted, this ruining of the earth, this violence that filled it, resulted in the flood. Now, we talked a lot about what this necessarily means, and I want to read you the story. I'm going to read it verbatim because it's so well written. Feli uh, Lawson wrote that, wrote this. It's in our, the introduction to our, our uh, guide this week. But I want to read it because I think it really captures the idea that the priests were trying to get behind as they told this story of Genesis. Picture it. You could think and plan and save until the time is just right to build your dream home. 
You choose the perfect lot, then devote all your passion and attention to thoughtfully drawing up the plans, taking into account your family's needs, interests, comfort, and safety. You immerse yourself in the minute of design, plumbing, wiring, HVAC, and ensuring energy efficiency in order to construct the own entire house with your own two hands. You know every nail, outlet, shingle, tile, hinge, because you purposely put each one into place by yourself according to your own vision. You dream up and apply a beautifully original color palette. Then fill your home with carefully chosen furnishings and linens that give it a functional as well as, that give it functionality as well as personality. You stock the kitchen with your family's very favorite foods, snacks, drinks. You fill your saltwater pool, set it at the perfect temperature. You fire up the Wi-Fi, install the Bose home entertainment system, plug in your PS4 Pro into your 77-inch OLED television. You test the security system and it all runs perfectly. And then you go. You're gone. You unlock the door. You invite the kids in. You hand them the keys. And because everything is done, you cease your efforts. And you may take a little vacation. But while you're gone... Your kids shed every ounce of their common sense and regard, their, and regard for property or consequence. They throw a party and invite every near acquaintance of questionable moral fiber they can think of. What ensues is a marathon of poor choices, a loud and rowdy party of legendary proportions. When well into hour seven, your apoplectic neighbors call the police. A squad car pulls up to find your guest engaged in a variety of ill-advised endeavors, the evidence of which litter your once immaculate front yard. And there, twirling the flaming batons at the front of the parade of knuckleheads, are your own kids. Upon your return, you're left to take all this in. This is in metaphorical form, what this particular story of Genesis is likened to. We have a God who has meticulously created the perfect place, a place where we can plant a seed in the most common of all elements, dirt, and add a little bit of water and almost zero other effort. And out of the ground will come something like this. And this being maybe one of the more simple, miraculous things that happen. And yet we, like those on-fire baton twirling knuckle-headed kids, have run rampant through it. What has ensued has been a millennial-long kegger of epic proportions, where we have busted windows, trenched the lawn, kicked holes in the sheetrock. And so if that's true, if that's what's happening, if that's how we are to approach this, what's our way out of it? How do we respond to that? 
Well, I think that takes us back to our original questions. First of all, we have to understand what was God's purpose in creating that place in the first place? Like, why did God do that? Why did God make, put all this effort into this, into this seemingly what we know of right now, this one planet amongst a billion, billion stars that seems hospitable to human life? Well, we don't really know. I don't know why God created us. I don't know why God created the stars in the universe. I don't know why God placed me and us here in this miraculous land that produces sunflowers and oak trees and waterfalls and hummingbirds. I, I don't know. How do we understand something that seems to be created by, for, and towards someone else? Because we clearly understand that it was all created for God's glory. And where does that leave us if it's created for God? Well, even if we don't understand. And there's lots of theories, and it's good to engage our imagination about why that may be. But even if we don't understand it, we can surely understand that our purpose is not to have that millennial-long keg party. Even if we don't understand the, the ultimate whys, the ultimate reasons, the ultimate purpose for this place and our existence in it, we do know and we can know for certainty that our purpose is not to destroy it, abuse it, trash it, disregard it, fill it with violence and ruin. It cannot be. And if we look a little bit deeper, and if we look to the one whom we follow, Jesus, we can start to see the path to understanding that. As we talked about earlier, we are called to be partakers of the divine nature. We are called into this relationship with Jesus. And see, we want all that information set out before us, but we don't get it, y'all. We don't get it. It's not offered that way. It is offered in the person of Jesus. That as we take on that apprenticeship to Jesus, as we become followers of the Master, and we learn how to respond properly, appropriately, responsibly to creation by being apprentices of Jesus, I believe those things will start to unveil, be unveiled. I believe they'll start to be revealed to us why we're here, what creation is about, and the things in that. That's why I'm, I'm so fascinated uh, when I get to spend time, um, I think he was in here, Matt Covington, um, studying the earth, studying how things are formed and why they're doing that. Listen, y'all, it's not like there's science over here and there's a Bible over here. The study of glaciers, the study of caves, the study of animals, the study of grasses, how things grow, that's holy work. That's holy work. That's part of our calling as being made in the image of God. And that leads us to this next point. What does this mean for us? Well, first of all, we have to realize that we humans have an outsized influence on the creative order. We have such incredible potential as human beings to affect our surroundings. Unlike any other creature, under, unlike any other part of God's creative order, we have power to heal, to steward, or to destroy. 
to abuse, to commodify. And that power is a reflection of being created in the image of God. Male and female, He created them in His image. That is reflected in our ability to influence the power that we have. Look, righteousness is not just a human morality tale. Righteousness deals with a holistic shalom of creation. And we are the ones who are to bear witness to that. We are called as icons in the Greek. Image bearers. Representatives of God. That what it, that's another part of what it means to be made in God's image. And as we look and understand the nature and character of God, then we can understand how our nature and character has been corrupted and where it needs to go as it is being redeemed and restored. And as we do that, we understand that it moves away from a materialism towards a materiality. There can be no righteousness for an individual alone. It is always in the context of community. And that community is other people, but it is also creation. It is also the very land that we live in, the soil that we walk in, the trees that we plant or cut down, the way that we build our roads and homes and factories, the way we provide for ourselves and others. All of that is encompassed in what it means to be righteous. All of that is encompassed in what it means to be a Christian. We need to be right in our standing with God, yes, but also ourselves, others, and the earth. And I will say this, as Norma sent me some reading this week and it resonated with me, our problems are not as much technological as they are theological. Let me say that again. Our problems are not as much technological as they are theological. And I would add to that that if our answers are going to be right and sustaining, they will be theologically good answers. The world is yearning right now, groaning for a sufficient, life-giving, Jesus-honoring theology of creation theology for how we care for the environment and what we do and how we produce things. Because if we get our theology wrong on that, we'll never get it right. We'll never get anything right. That has to be the basis of how we interact with the world around us. It's interesting also, as you read the story, you'll see that the same charge that was given to Adam and Eve in, in another form was given to Noah and his family and then is later given to, the system, uh, given to the children of Israel. That's one of the things we're going to see as we follow this narrative throughout the Bible is we're going to see that this charge, it starts in Genesis, but it doesn't end there. It is repeated throughout the Bible as we move through. We're going to hear it echoed in the voices of the prophet. We're going to hear it echoed in the sermons of Jesus. We're going to hear it echoed in the metaphors of Revelation. This charge to be image bearers, witnesses of Jesus, to bring restoration, shalom, peace, wholeness, and righteousness to the very earth that we walk on. Not just human systems. I was reading this morning, I don't need to recite the news, you all know about the, we already talked about the fires in Montana and the triple 
triple-shot hurricanes that are churning out in the Atlantic, the solar flares that are happening, the earthquake. We didn't even, I mean, we haven't even thought about the earthquake in Mexico because we've had our own problem. That's the strongest earthquake they've had in 100 years, much less the tsunamis and the monsoons they're having in Bangladesh and in India and over there. And then you add in there the man-made stuff, the brinkmanship of nuclear war and the things going on with that. One writer said, look, this is not the end of times, but it sure seems like a dress rehearsal for them. As we look at all this, is there, is there anything more we need to motivate us to revisit our theology of creation, our theology of Genesis, of understanding creation, of asking God to blow the smoke away and then doing the work to get the eyes to see what is revealed and then walking out in that? I, if, it, if it's not this, what's it going to take, y'all? I mean, I, and I know we all have shortest attention spans and bills to pay and shows to binge watch on Netflix. My queue's filled up. My book list is full. But I'm going to take time. I'm going to commit myself to this. It's something that I need to know more about. It's something that we need to understand better. And hopefully it was something that will emerge as we study throughout this year, along with many other things. So I encourage you as the worship team comes up this week, or the worship team comes up, I encourage you this week to spend some time outside. Spend some time this week with your hands in the dirt. Spend some time with your planting, hiking. Go float on your back in the lake before it gets too cold. Go throw a line in the river. Go just take a long ride on the bike trail. Spend some time outside. Spend some time reflecting on all this around us, on the miracle of it all, the miracle of it all. And think about what it means to be an icon, an image bearer, a faithful witness to Jesus in relationship to that. As Alex plays just a little bit here, I also want to lead us in prayer this week. Um, man, it's just been a, been a busy week. We had this we kicked off our Recreo ministry this week. All the faithful people who are here Friday night to, to start this ministry to Hispanic families who have special needs members in their families. That's just incredible. Our hearts have also been broken with our friends, the Mawinda family, who just recently learned of the, the death of one of their family members leaving a pregnant widow with four children who will soon be joining our family here as she gets, they get their visas to come in as refugees. We will be responsible soon, Grace Church, for a pregnant widow, four children, speaks maybe no English. We are, we are voluntarily putting ourselves in the place of being responsible for that family as they come. It's going, to be, it's going to be beautiful and it's going to be challenging. 
And then we need to remember those who have been affected by the storms, affected by the fires, the earthquakes, the flooding, and who are putting their lives on the line at risk in military installations with the political situation. So pray with me as we start for these things. Jesus, we submit ourselves to you once again. We submit ourselves to you. And ask you to give us a vision of being your image bearers, your apprentices in this world we have now. This world of very specific needs from very specific families. And at the same time, overwhelming needs on an ecological, geographic scale. That you would infuse us with your imagination, your heart, your mind, your power of the Holy Spirit to respond appropriately, intentionally, vigorously, and humbly in every way that we can. Not in our own power, not in our own strength, but led by your Spirit. Bless our efforts to reach out, to serve. Give us a heart to welcome and to give. We pray in Jesus' name. We're going to take some time now to join together and come to the table. Come to the table that is set. Just like the sunflower that grows when the seed is planted, this table is set every week. We can eat of it and take of it freely and fully knowing that it will be set again for us. We don't need to hoard. We don't need to fear. The table of Jesus is set for us eternally. And so as we come and as we eat, let that sink into you. Let the materiality of it sink into your body. Rest on your tongue. This table is set for you today and it has been set for you in the past and it will be set for you in the future. It is part of the gift of creation. I think that's part of the mystery of why Jesus did it on that last night with his disciples when he took the bread and he broke it asking them to remember him by doing it also always he said this is my body which is broken for you and likewise he took the cup and he lifted it up and he said this is my blood poured out as a sign of the new covenant the remission of sins This is a cup that never runs dry and a plate that is never emptied set for us this morning. So come and take that in that knowledge. Take this time to reflect on what you've heard this morning to make commitments as appropriate. Pray with someone if you need to pray with them. We'll take up an offering as a way we support the various ministries here. And we will worship in response, not for what we hope to get, but for what has already abundantly been supplied for us. Thank you for being here.